What does it mean to be omnipresent in the food channel? Daily Harvest founder and CEO Rachel Drury explains how her company aims to meet consumers where they are and how Daily Harvest supports regenerative agriculture on this episode of the Food Institute podcast, coming at you right now. everybody. I want to thank you all for joining in with us another week here on the Food Institute podcast. Really excited for this episode, but before we jump into it, I did want to highlight the fact that the Food Institute has a bunch of free newsletters and you can definitely sign up by going to foodinstitute.com slash newsletters. So with that out of the way, welcome to the show, Rachel. I was hoping you could share a little bit about yourself and Daily Harvest for some of our audience members who may not know who you are just yet. Uh, thanks, Chris. I'm Rachel Drury and I'm the founder and CEO of Daily Harvest. So I started the business about eight years ago, and it really came from this personal need that I saw. And if you go back in my career, there were lots of things that kind of built up to the moment of the idea. Um, I had always worked in marketing. I worked at Amex. I worked at Four Seasons Hotels. Um, I had worked at Guilt Group. Um, and the kind of string that that flowed through all of those businesses is they were very service-oriented, very in tune with what the customer wanted, what the customer needed. Um, hospitality, I always say, is like one click in from marketing where it's actually anticipating customers' needs instead of just meeting customers' needs. Um, and I had this moment when I was working at, at Guilt Group where I was like, wait a minute, I know so much about what I should be eating. I know so much about health, wellness, and nutrition, but I still feel like I'm failing myself. Like I'm not eating the way that I know I should. I don't feel great. And I, it all kind of came colliding together where I realized the reason I didn't feel great was because I wasn't eating the one thing that I knew to be good for me. I had studied the politics of food in school. Um, I also was a rower growing up, so I had a ton of information about health, wellness, nutrition, um, and the system at large. And, you know, when it all came together, I was like, even I, who have all this information, cannot seem to eat in a way that makes me feel great. And the idea was really, if we could, if I could pave the way for people to eat more fruits and vegetables every day, which are the one objectively good foundational part of the, the human diet... Like you can't argue that that cauliflower is good for you. You might want, not want to eat it, but it's good for you. Um, then I would be able to solve this problem for myself. If I could just make it easier, um, I would feel better. And I started bagging up ingredients and and you know going about my day, um, just personally trying to see how I could how I could feel better and eat better and, you know, make everything work for me. And as I was doing that, um, you know, the, the politics of food education that I had had came like, you know, the, the light bulb went off and I was like, you know what, this is a, a real business. And I spoke to a lot of my friends about what, um, you know, the problems that they were having with the way that they were eating, the way that they were taking care of themselves. And it was clear that it was more than just the food that they were putting in their diet. There was so much friction and stress about what to eat um, because our food system is, you know, was built in, in a way where there's so much health washing, so much greenwashing that it adds like a bunch of stress to your diet. 
So it's not only about the food that you're eating, but it's also about, well, like, what is the truth and what is not the truth and what am I eating and how is like, is it actually good for me? And today, you know, adaptogenic mushrooms are good for me. And, you know, when I was growing up, it was hundred calorie packs and like, you know, what, what is actually the truth? Um, so, you know, Daily Harvest is all about removing the friction between the intent and action of eating more fruits and vegetables every day, but also taking care of all of the other things that go through your mind as you're trying to figure out what to eat, right? Not only are fruits and vegetables objectively good for you, we're making sure that they taste good, but we're giving them to you in a format that allows them to be super convenient so you don't have to worry about the prep. Putting them in a format that means they don't perish so that, you know, it's not like the slimy spinach and rotting raspberries in your refrigerator, but, you know, something that is always ready when you are. And then going even deeper to like the root of the problem, really thinking about the food system and the food that you're eating, because not every, you know, going back to that cauliflower, not every head of cauliflower is grown the same way. So thinking about how can we support farmers? How can we support biodiversity? How can we support uh, regenerative agriculture, which add to the human nutrition, which add to, you know, getting the biggest bang from your buck from eating the fruits and vegetables that you're eating? How do we make sure that the, you know, the fruits and vegetables you're eating actually have the intended benefits? Well, it's by going to how they're grown. And if we think about, you know, that simple truth of eating more fruits and vegetables that are grown in the right way, um, what that means is in a way that supports humans thriving and a thriving planet, which, you know, directly impacts humans. So if we want humans to be able to live on this planet, um, these are both crucial details in making that happen. Um, you know, I always, I always tell people that the planet will be fine long after humans are gone, It'll probably be better for it. Um, but, you know, we've got to keep humans on this planet. That's what we, we really mean when we talk about climate change and, and, you know, the challenges that we face. But also, you know, there are, we have some really um, deep challenges with human health. And, and, you know, it's simple, but we believe that solving for eating more fruits and vegetables grown right is the answer. And I appreciate you sharing all of that. Um, one of the things that really intrigued me for this conversation was the pivot you made from DTC to Omnichannel. And it might be worthwhile to just talk about the original model with Daily Harvest and how you were a DTC company. And maybe we could talk a little bit about that pivot into the Omnichannel platform. Absolutely. So I started Daily Harvest as direct to consumer for a bunch of reasons, mostly because the freezer aisle is really hard to break into. Um, you know, when you think about how much of a grocery store it takes up, it's like, you know, like a tenth of the store, maybe even less. And um, trying to figure out how to break through as a brand that is standing for something very different from what people associate the freezer aisle with would have been incredibly difficult. So the idea was, how do we go directly to consumers, rewrite the narrative of what Frozen actually could unlock for you, as opposed to what it's done historically since, you know, the um, the revolution of the, the microwave dinner? Um, and how do we really get customers to see that, you know, Frozen is the way that that you can make fruits and vegetables or daily fruits and vegetable consumption as... Um, you know, easy as, as eating a bar or eating, you know, a cookie or whatever else it is. Um, so it really came to the relationship with the customer that you can build in a D2C environment. You can have a two-way dialogue. You can understand what they want. You can 
you know, respond to it and then get feedback. And that's how the business grew. And that's how, you know, we landed in a place where today we have, you know, nine different collections, um, flatbreads, harvest bowls, smoothies, to name a few. Um, and it was really about what is our customer asking for? What are the different ways that we can solve for the human need to eat more fruits and vegetables grown right, but also do it in a way that fits more like a lot of people's lifestyle. And, um, you know, the digital platform also allows us to understand not just the average customer. We always say we make food for individuals, not averages. And what that means is, you know, you might want to eat more fruits and vegetables or, or, you know, AKA daily harvest for your dinner, but for somebody else that habit might make more sense for breakfast. So we've created a brand that really allows you to consume over multiple day parts, which is very different from traditional CPG. Um, we live in nine different categories or we call them collections. Um, and this would have been incredibly difficult in a grocery environment. So that was the, um, you know, the, catalyst to start as D2C. And, um, you know, we grew quite rapidly as a D2C only business. And, um, you know, as you, as you mentioned, we've just launched in grocery stores. So, um, we've launched exclusively in Kroger to start and, um, you know, 1100 stores and we're learning a ton, but this really came the the um the desire to become an omnipresent business really came from our customers and really came from our audience where um you know with d2c becoming more and more popular you know in, in the 2020s let's say um we were really focused on you know how we're we're helping everybody eat more fruits and vegetables our mission is you know we take care of food so food can take care of you and our mission is really to help everybody eat more fruits and vegetables, not just people who buy food online. So by starting online, we were able to build trust and build that two-way dialogue and, and you know, break through with our brand to make sure that people understood that we were something very different from, say, the microwave dinner going back there. But only 16% of people buy food online. And when we think about the opportunity to 4X the number of people who we can reach with our mission, with... Um, you know, the important work of, of helping people eat more fruits and vegetables grown right, um, it was a no-brainer to go into grocery stores. Our customers, you know, our, our community wanted it. Our customers on D2C like D2C, but, um, you know, there's just a huge opportunity to reach 84% more people um, in a grocery store setting. And we have the brand awareness now where it makes a ton of sense to be able to Breakthrough. Whereas if we were, you know, one item in the bottom right hand corner of a freezer um, shelf, it would have been virtually impossible. So um, we're really excited about our launch into grocery, and there's a lot more growth coming for 2024. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's so far it's it's going really well and we've got, you know, top velocities and um, we're pulling in younger, a younger generation of consumer into the freezer aisle. Um, and we're seeing a lot of the same um, D2C behaviors that, uh, you know, our customers stock up and then draw their, their home stock down and then, you know, go to replenish in a grocery store setting. So it's been a really exciting um, advancement for the business. 
Yeah, and I really appreciate that brand velocity comment because to your point, you know, the frozen food sector has been very hot the last couple of years, you know, during the pandemic, obviously people wanted to stock up. And even in these inflationary times, I think consumers are looking to frozen as a way to basically secure their investment in their food, right? Fresh item might go bad, but if it's something that's frozen, they have a little bit more of a shelf life. So I think that's all interesting. Um, But one thing I really wanted to kind of talk about here is that term you used, which is omnipresent. You know, Mm -hmm. in the industry, we all talk omni-channel, but I really thought this term was pretty interesting. And I was hoping you could basically explain what that means to Daily Harvest and, you know, part of the ethos behind it. Yeah. So we, as as you said, um, use omnipresent. And the rationale behind it is is actually a really important one. when you think about a channel strategy or you think about a business being omni-channel, that is a business first mentality. That is, you know, we need to be in multiple channels to X, Y, Z. You know, as I alluded to when I was speaking about my career, I have a very customer first mentality. At Daily Harvest, we are always thinking customer first. And if you put a customer first lens on channel strategy, it kind of flips it to where does your customer need you to be and when? And that is where omnipresent comes from, because it's more of a strategy of saying, we're going to be where our customer needs us to be, as opposed to we are going to have a channel strategy that then sells to those customers. And it just kind of flips that dynamic a bit, which is why that's the term that we use in-house. And it's it's one that, um, you know, everybody is kind of, it's, it's like drilled into their minds, let's say. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely an interesting one. And like I said, I wanted to bring it up because I had not heard it before, but I definitely understand, you know, kind of reframes how you're looking at the customer. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about, too, I know you just mentioned you have the partnership with Kroger. Uh, I guess to start, I would just like to know what products are you actually offering with Kroger right now? And maybe are there any lessons learned as you made this shift from DTC into that omnipresent um, yeah. you know, styling? Anything that you learned here that, you know, maybe you would want to be able to tell yourself a year ago before you headed into this? Absolutely. So I would say um, starting with what we're offering. So we're offering 15 different items. We have smoothies, we have harvest bowls, and we have our flatbreads. Um, And, you know, it's been a very, um, very exciting rollout. We have them displayed in a brand block, which was incredibly important to us. You know, if we're building a relationship with shoppers, we really want to make sure that they understand um, you know, the values of daily harvest, not just, you know, what they are are seeing on a shelf. And it's very hard to understand that when all the, the categories are separated. Um, and then, you know, as far as lessons learned, I mean, I, I could go on for an hour about this. There's so many. Um, there are some things that we knew we would face early on um, that, you know, we just knew. And, and we said, like, let's um, test, learn, and iterate. We have an amazing partnership with Kroger. And, you know, knowing that this was our first go, um, you know, we talked a lot about how that ability to test, learn, and iterate was going to be key to our mutual success. Um, and they've been really great partners with that. So I would say the one that really stands out to me kind of goes goes back to our mission. So part of our mission is um, regenerative agriculture. And just to get really specific, we invest um, in a bunch of ways in that effort, but like regenerative agriculture is a sum of many things. So the specific one that I'm going to hit on is really about transitional organic. So we have multiple programs that 
that allow us to find farmers who um, need support, want to make the transitional or want to transition from conventional to organic, which is a three-year process, incredibly expensive, a huge commitment but on, the, on behalf of the farmer. Um, and we've also uh, partnered with uh, CCOF and American Farmland Trust to be able to not only find farmers who you know, have this desire, but also to find land that's at risk and to pair them up, which is, has been a really cool thing. But where I'm going with this is it's so important that we transition land from conventional to organic because, um, you know, only 1% of 1% of American farmland is organic. And we buy an outsized amount of organic food as a country, but it comes from other places. So yes, we're consuming more organic than other places, but it's not, but our soil is still riddled with pesticides and our farmers, right, aren't making that transition. So it's not setting them up for the long run. So what we've done is by pinpointing these farmers, pinpointing land, we've partnered with them and we've said, we're going to help you. We're going to pay you for organic while you're making that three-year transition we're going to create demand for your crops during this transitional period. And on the other side, you know, we've got long-term contracts. So what's wonderful about this is it helps transition more land to organic. I also like to focus on, you know, supply and demand. If we can really bring some of that organic supply into the U.S., not only does it help our soil and those pesticides hurt our farmers' health as well. So, you know, when we really think about the importance of transitioning to, or, to organic, the goal is if you create more supply, right, you bring prices down over time. It's the only way to really make organic farming um, affordable for, you know, not only farmers, but also for consumers. So 10% of our ingredients we withhold from, um, from organic today, and we really invest in these programs for transitional and this has always been part of our D2C story. And we've been able to share stories about our farmers and stories about the importance of this transition with our consumers th through all the channels in which we communicate with them. When we went to grocery, I'd say like the rubber hit the road where people are just so used to seeing an organic certification and it's either you are or you're not. And there's no room for nuance. There's no way to explain to your customer the nuance of, you know, well, we're 90% and, you know, we withhold so that we can, we can invest. And, you know, when people hear that story, it's something that really resonates and they get excited about it and they want to participate and, you know, they, um, you know, they feel good about what they're putting in their body, but they also feel good about what they're putting out into the universe. So it's just been this interesting thing where it's like, how do you tell that story in a grocery environment uh, or do you not? And that's one of the things that we're really grappling with that will always be part of our mission, will always be something that we invest in. Uh, but just thinking about, you know, you've got a shelf <laughs> and you've got packaging and there's only so much space on that packaging and it's a lot to share. And, um, you know, people are just so used to that that organic label. So um, I would say that that is, is probably the most challenging thing that we've had to grapple with. Yeah, and that 1% of 1% statistic is pretty staggering. And it makes me wonder, you know, how difficult is it to find farms that meet these standards then? It seems like there's not a whole lot in the U.S. you would be able to go to then. So can you maybe explain that process a little bit, what it's like finding these farms to work with? Yeah, so um, as I said, we have great partners in AFT and CCOF. And they're on the ground all the time, you know, meeting with farmers, which is incredibly helpful for, for um, 
you know, us meeting folks and, and trying to understand what's going on. Um, they've paired us up with a lot of farmers that, you know, we're making the investments to help them make those transitions. And then we have, you know, an, a boots on the ground sourcing team that, you know, scours the United States for farmers that they can, that they can partner with on these um, initiatives. And, you know, one example is um, we have a, a millet farmer who, you know, we have this wonderful relationship with. It's a really interesting story because they are an, a land of corn farmers. Um, you know, that is, they're surrounded by people who are, are um, working their land to feed, you know, for cow feed and for, you know, ethanol production and all of these things. Um, and they're really an outlier where they live and they wanted to change. They had a, a generational um, you know, shift in the ownership of the land and they wanted to, to make a change. Um, and we partnered with them not only to transition to organic, but now leaning in with them on regenerative organic, um, which is just such an interesting, um, you know, transition because organic by definition is like, you know, you're not using pesticides, but you can still use, um, you know, organic compounds on top that um, do a similar thing. But when you're regenerative organic, it's really thinking about things like crop rotation and cover cropping and, um, you know, resting your land and the things that that keep your farmland and your soil safe for generations to come. So, um, you know, I would say that it's it's a little bit of everywhere that we source our, our uh, produce from. Um, but it really is these deep relationships that we've formed, um, from AFT, CCOF, but also our sourcing team. And then farmers also talk and, you know, we've had a lot of people reach out to us with the desire to partner with us on some of these transitions. So it's been a, a great relationship that we have with the farming community. Yeah. And I think regenerative agriculture is like a sleeping dragon in a lot of ways for the U.S. food system. Um, to your point, you know, we do eat a lot of organic food, but if we're importing a lot of it, you know, it makes it very difficult, right, for that to be sustainable. Um, yes. And something I've been kind of noticing, it seems, it seems to be percolating around the industry is like there is this focus on regenerative agriculture. So I'm wondering, you know, are you finding any kind of like competition from other companies as they're searching for these farms? No, it's about relationship building. Um We've rarely met a farmer where if they know that they have their livelihood taken care of, um, doesn't want to make that transition. And it really is. It's that three years. There's so much risk for the farmer. And just to give you, you know, an example, um, you know, we have a relationship with some growers in Montana. Um, and when we went to meet with them, right, they were talking about Canadian thistle and their fields were completely plagued by it. Um, and after the three year, they had done a three year transition of truly backbreaking work to become organic to begin with. Um, Canadian thistle forced them to apply glyphosate. And they had to revert their land from organic back to conventional only to have to start the three year transition process again. So that's really where regenerative comes into play. Right. And, and when you have that biodiversity on your land, when you have something that's really resilient, um, it becomes. Yeah, I, I'm just going to say more resilient. It becomes more resilient um, and allows you to, you know, have that land not only turn organic, but really stay that way. 
Um, so there's multiple layers to it, but it's really our belief that if we can tr transition more land from conventional to organic, that the food system and all its stakeholders will become healthier. Yeah, and I think that's something consumers are definitely asking for, at least from our seat here at the Food Institute. We're seeing, you know, they don't necessarily know how to ask for regeneratively grown products yet, but they are looking for healthier items. I think they're looking yeah. for fresher items. You know, organic has obviously been big for a couple of years now, maybe even a decade, really, when you look back. But I feel like there's a growing interest in organic products, too. So it does seem like this is a good fit. Um, one thing I would like to kind of turn back to, though, is, you know, the DTC angle of the business. Um, I've talked to a number of DTC companies and typically they are like lightweight products, um, you know, things that are relatively easy to ship. I have to imagine Daily Harvest has a little bit of a different viewpoint on the supply chain. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, maybe any of the challenges, difficulties it, it takes to really deliver this quality product directly to a consumer's door. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, the answer is I like to make my life difficult, but yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, delivering frozen food to consumers' doorsteps and ensuring that everybody has a great experience is not easy. And there are lots of perishable D2C businesses that rely on things like ice packs, um, but that doesn't work for frozen. It, it just doesn't. The solution is dry ice. And, you know, after, over the last few years, we've just learned a ton about dry ice supply chain um, more than I ever thought I would. Um, and, you know, where it's just been really interesting is that um, dry ice is actually solidified CO2. And that makes the dry ice supply chain highly dependent on CO2 availability. And what's really ironic is from a climate change perspective, our societies have been producing way too much CO2 in addition to other emissions. But to capture that CO2 for like use in applications like dry ice it just takes so much um, infrastructure right now. So that like process is in its super nascent stages. Um, so, you know, a lot of the CO2 used to make the dry ice supply chain comes from either natural well sources or as a byproduct of other industrial gas production processes. So, you know, there's, it's just a long way of saying that industrial CO2 has become more regulated. Demand nationally has continued to increase um, and, the supply has continued to be suppressed and it's made the availability of dry ice for businesses like ours become really unreliable, which is, you know, one of the biggest challenges. Um, we've made a ton of investments to offset that risk. We, you know, have a, an in-house data science team that, that, um, you know, has built a model to help us properly allocate dry ice for each customer order, depending on the weather, the box contents, the shipping carrier. But, you know, our, our food is is heavy and it has to be kept frozen. So it is certainly complicated, um, but, you know, we've managed it in, in ways that I think serve our customer. And there's a bunch of big investments that we're making on this front, um, you know, for the future as well. And that's pretty amazing, even down to the customer and like the weather patterns. You have the ability to kind of take a look into what the delivery window is going to look like and adjust yep. to see... That's pretty incredible. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, it, we've built it all into a, a homegrown algorithm that really helps us understand all of these inputs. 
Um, and it's, it's pretty automated at this point where, you know, on the line, it tells our team how much dry ice specifically to put in every single box. And, um, you know, we've had a pretty high success rate with this algorithm. We continue to tweak it as, you know, people write in and, you know, we have, um, we were, uh, before we jumped in today, we were talking about how hot it is in New York, right? Like, the weather's been weird and sometimes we have outlier days. Um, but if we see it coming, we can adjust for it, which is, is great. So Rachel, I wish we had more time, but of course every episode has to come to an end. Um, I'm just wondering if anyone wants to learn more about daily harvest, where should they go? Thanks, Chris. This has been really fun. Um, you can find daily harvest at dailyharvest.com or in Kroger stores near you. Perfect. And we'll definitely share a link in the description of this episode so people can get right there. But once again, I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you. That's going to do it for us this week on the Food Institute podcast. Make sure to check out foodinstitute.com slash newsletters to check out all of our free newsletter content. Till next time, this is Chris Campbell signing off. <laughs>